You're listening to the Bill Sunday School Podcast. The force of a religion is, is really its ability to transcend from one generation to the next generation, conveying its rights, its rules, its traditions, different things like that. But but with Africa, the one thing about African religious traditions was that not a whole lot of it is written down. A lot of African history is oral history. And so the way that we understand our faith in God is because we each can carry around a book of basically rules and regulations and a book that contains life in it. And so it's easy for us to get away as individuals and say, I want to learn more about my faith. And so in, in, in solitude, we can open up a book of which most of us own multiple copies and we can learn about our own faith and our own religion just through reading. But in Africa... If we, go, if we go to Africa and want to study about a religion in a village or in a nation or in a people group or a tribe, it, it would be very difficult for us to do that. Obviously, first of all, you'd have to know the language to communicate with them to ask for basically a book of their, their Bible, basically. And then if we could ask them that question, most of them would, would say, we don't have anything like that. Why? It's because some of the elders in our tribe just orally translate our history and our religious traditions and they gather us together and have us perform dances or perform certain certain rites of passage for for young men to become actually adult men and so it's it's very hard for an african religion to gain momentum because they they have no use of the printing press because First of all, a lot of, a lot of the ancient um, Africans were illiterate and never, re- never wrote anything down. And so at the time when the Bible was being printed and reproduced and traveling all around the world, African religions were staying basically tribe by tribe or nation by nation. And one of the major spreads of any African religion was what? Slavery, right? And so we have, we have some of that, but... But to a degree, the force of African religions, the reason why we all are Judeo-Christian, have Judeo-Christian background in our faith is because of the power of print, really. That that our faith transcended oceans and countries and languages because because of it being available to us in print. Now, printing of a religion allows for discovery and then also rediscovery because all of us... If, you're, if, if you've been a Christian for some time, you know that you can pick up the Bible and all of a sudden be re-inspired. Even though you've been a Christian for a while, it's the rediscovery of, oh, I remember when I read that verse and for the first time and you, and you recall that and you remember how it, how it inspired you and caught you on fire. And so you can't really do that as if you were growing up, if all of us were kind of a tribe and Joe was our leader and he was trying to tell us what, what they used to do centuries ago, then we'd have to kind of rely on Joe. And if you're not hanging out with Joe, then you're not really learning about your faith, right? So we have it way easier than that. African traditional religions don't really have sacred scriptures, and therefore, for us, there's some false assumptions. 
we 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 have the term witch doctor, right? All of us have all of us have have heard of that, and we've used it. Maybe we we know the connotation that it means. It's really an incorrect term. I've used it before, um, even conveying stories about uh, different encounters uh, while I was in Africa. There was there was uh, one point that. Uh, my team was staying in this compound. We were staying in this hut, and we woke up one morning to and walked out of the gate, and there was um, a bag of urine hanging on the bush right across the path from from where we were, and um, and our contacts basically told us that 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 was the witch doctor trying to put a curse on us. Well, it's really an incorrect term because a witch doctor in 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 Africa. The witch doctors in the villages aren't necessarily bad people in relation to the, their own villagers. They're really public servants because in order for you to become a Sengoma or a, what's the other word, a shaman, you have to perform public service. So, so as you're, if you wanted to become a shaman or a Sengoma, then you would have to become an apprentice of that. It's kind of like taking an internship. So you follow around this guy and and in order to become that, you have to perform very simplistic civil duties. And so what does that do for the quote-unquote witch doctors in the village? It allows them to get to know everybody in their village, and then they are serving the people in their village, whether it's bringing water or cleaning up or, or, or preparing meals or whatever they're doing, collecting firewood. Then it it brings on this reputation of the witch doctors of being very good people and being servants. And then when you become that Sengoma, then people come to you when they're sick, when they have a headache, when they have a stomach ache, when things in life just aren't going well. And one of the main things that, that these witch doctors do is they counsel people. And they kind of become the pastors or the counselors of their own people group. And then... They do, have, they do have these incantations and, and spells, and they try their best with herbal medicine and things to, to cure a headache or a stomachache. Well, if you're out in the middle of Africa and you have no way to get yourself any Tylenol or ibuprofen or whatever, and this witch doctor who, through tradition, by, by you know, just try, trial and error has come up with these medications of taking this root, this berry, and combining this with this amount of liquid, and then all of a sudden he gives you kind of this syrup, and it makes your stomach ache go away, or it makes your headache go away. Well, you think that this guy's the best guy in the whole world. And so we assume, from our perspective, that witch doctors are bad, and so as Christian missionaries, we we have this concept of we need to go over there, and we need to eradicate the witch doctors, and we need to take them out, and we need to... We need to cut off the ties and the dependence of these villagers from the witch doctors, but really it's more tradition and trial and error and maybe even good people doing good things. But with that, they, there's also the bad things. There is the divination and there is the calling upon ancestral spirits, which is real. And um, you guys would... You guys would I don't want you to raise your hands, but of those of you who believe that you can actually call up um, ancestral spirits, maybe, maybe some would raise their hands, maybe some wouldn't. But if you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 28, Saul is at the end of his reign, and he's, in, he's just in really bad shape. And he goes to 
that woman or that witch of Endor, and she calls up Samuel, right? And so Saul speaks to Samuel after Samuel was dead. Well, the same thing happens in Africa. What, what I compare it to is this. If, if you're in downtown Colorado Springs or downtown Denver and you look up on a clear night, you'll, you'll see some stars. But if you go out into the country, out into Black Forest or up into the mountains on that same night and you look up, you'll see so many more stars than what you're capable of seeing in the city. And it's because the earthly lights actually are so bright that we can't see the other stars that are a little bit more dim than the brighter stars. And so while we live in, Africa, while we live in America, we live in such light and such prosperity that sometimes the spiritual realm is hidden from us. And so when you go to Africa, you realize that these people live with the knowledge of the spiritual realm way more than we do. And so, so many things happen that, that, you would, that we, we just wouldn't even believe. And I've heard stories that I just, you just have a hard time even believing it, um, except for that it's told from people that I really respect. Just different, different stories um, of people that run an orphanage and they had, they had basically like one thing of food left, like one dish of food, but they had to feed all of these people. And so they pray over it and it was just like feeding of the 5,000. This food kept multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And so they fed all of the orphans and there was still food in the dish. There was one, there was one story that I heard that I still, I still can't believe it, but there was, there was somebody that he was on a bus, and if you go to Africa with us, you'll see these buses that just get crammed full of people, and they'll travel for just for days on these buses with people just hanging out of the windows, basically. And, and they came to this stop where all these people are loading and unloading, and there was, there was a herder, because there's a lot of people that, that you'll see nomadic tribes that are, that are walking around, and they're herding their goats, or they're herding their cattle. Well, this one man wants to get on the, onto his bus with his 12 cows. <laughs> well, it's just a tiny little bus, and it's already packed full. Well, <clears throat> he basically performs a spell or an incantation, puts the cows on the palm of his hand, and walks onto the bus. I, I'm not saying that really happened. I'm saying that somebody that I respect told me about that story secondhand, so now it's third and fourth hand. But it's those things that whether you believe the food multiplied or the cows shrunk, somewhere in between there is a spiritual understanding, a spiritual connection that we just, we just can't even grasp. There's, there's, more things, there's more things that have happened and more stories, and you guys know even better stories than that, I'm sure, but it's, it's based on the fact that you get out of the prosperity, you get out of the busyness of our society, you get out of all of the distractions, and you say... Boy, if there was nothing I could do after I worked in my fields and, and I just kind of had to sit around a fire and listen to the oral tradition of my family's history and of my tribe's history and of my nation's history, there's a certain bond that forms that somehow we in America don't really have. We talk about community and we talk about it in the context of the church. But these people rely on their family for food and for protection and for history, even, and so there's there's so many things, there's so many things that happen. There, uh, my one encounter with 
um, the practices of a witch doctor were I was I was making mud bricks in Africa and we were we were making mud bricks to help build this church and this older woman came by with this brand with this brand new baby. The baby was like maybe two weeks old. And so some of us stopped what we were doing and we were we were kind of we asked if we could hold the baby and and so we were talking, and then the, the pastor came up, and so we talked to this woman through the pastor since she couldn't speak any English. And um, we found out, somebody said, well, what's, what's the baby's name? And, and through translation, the pastor said, the baby's name is Doubt. And we were like, what? And the, the baby's name was Doubt because the mom died while giving birth. And so she, she said before she died that she wanted... She, she was going to name the baby Doubt because she didn't know if she could make it or if the baby would make it. And so here's this healthy baby now that doesn't have a mother or father and for the rest of its life is going to be called Doubt. Well, it also had around its, around its neck this, um, this little pouch. It was like a necklace with a, with a leather pouch. And I asked what that was about, and the, the witch doctor or the Sangoma had given it to to the grandmother who was taking care of it so that the baby would wear it because it fended off evil spirits. So things that we don't even think about, things that are not part of our history, they just accept it as that. Well, through, through a couple of different conversations and some prayer time, we were able to go back and meet with this grandmother, and we told her our thoughts and our perspective and shared Christ with her, and, and we told her that we thought it was best for her to to cut off that necklace, and after this long conversation, she agreed, and we were able to cut this, cut this pouch off and throw it into the fire, and then we asked her one thing, could we rename her grandchild? And, and we asked if we could rename her grandchild to trust, and we talked about trusting in Jesus. And so now there's a child growing up in Africa. I went back the next year, that was in Zambia, and I went back the next year, and I talked to the, I talked to the pastor, and I said, I said, tell me about trust. Is it, did, they, did they really keep that name? And, and he, just, he just smiled so brightly. And he said, the whole village knows that child as trust, and, and he's doing great. So it's, it's those things that are, you, have this, you have this perspective, but you have to understand the history and the connotation. You can't just go in there and say, oh, that's witchcraft, or oh, that's bad, because, because that grandmother equates that pouch as something good from a good man. It's just some. It's just some form of protection, and so you have to be. You have to be careful about how, about how you describe that. I wanted to tell you guys about um, one of the religions that's one of the African religions that has that has spread some, and it and it was it was started mainly in Nigeria. It, it, it wasn't Nigeria at the time, but now we know it as Nigeria. If you look, if you look on the map, and you can find Nigeria, it's kind of. Uh, under the chin, I think Africa kind of looks like the head and the front leg of a leopard going left. Anybody else? Somebody said that it looks like a head of a horse facing down. So at either at either way, Nigeria is kind of at the neck of whatever animal you want to make that look like. Um, but Yoruba is one of the religions that spread because of slavery. It started in the Nigeria area. But then it was taken over to the New World. So, if if you guys if you guys study um, if you guys study places like Cuba and Puerto Rico, um, sometimes even into New Orleans, there's there's a form of this. And so, um, the name for their the name for their god is Orishas, 
our, our deities in their, in their nation. And it's kind of Greek mythology-esque. There's, I'll give you an example. Uh, Obatala is the chief god. Ishua is, the, is devil-like. And Sango is the god of lightning. Now, Sango, he's the god of lightning, but as, as the tribes um, became more civilized and going into the new world and, and getting to be a part of some of the inventions that happened in, in this part of the world and then spread that way, um, Sango became known as the god of the modern electrical process. So he's the god of lightning, but then as you grow older, you're kind of like, well, wait a minute, we're starting to understand this a little bit better. And so the god is then morphed into, okay, well, maybe he's also in that light switch. And it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of funny, but you, 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 have to, you have to kind of realize that. And uh, Obatala is the chief god. He's kind of like Zeus. If all the other gods are fighting, Obatala can come in and he can kind of settle any dispute amongst the gods. So very polytheistic religion mixed in with the, the belief in witch doctors and herbal medicine and divination and all of that. And so you're, you, you realize how far away we are from a faith like that, that, that we, come from, we come from a Jewish tradition and then accept a, Ju- a Judeo-Christian worldview that has the belief in one God, and then it's so hard to understand why things are happening around the world, but you have to understand history before you can understand religion. And so I'm going to get into that a little bit. But the way that they would worship some of those gods is they would go to um, a witch doctor and, and conjure up ancestral spirits, and so you'd have, you'd have communion or consultation with lesser deities or ancestral spirits, and that's your way of connecting with your God. That's an act of worship. You'd also, um, one of the traditions is if, if you got a drink, um, if, if, you get, if you got together and you were enjoying a special drink, you, Africans might spill out the first sip of a drink, and that first sip is basically in honor of their God. It's, it, they're giving their God the first taste of, of that drink. And... And then um, one other act of worship that still happens today is called trocosi. Trocosi is basically it's ritual servitude. What happens here is is the guilt from what we would call sin or or doing something wrong, um, or even things that would happen bad to you. You feel like there's a curse on your life. You would you would this is. This is just rough, especially knowing that it happens today. That, that if somebody, if an older person in the family sins, if the dad or, or an older family member sins, what they would do potentially is send a young girl to, um, to, to one of the temples, to one of, um, to one of the religious shrines, and she becomes an indentured servant. What happens there is a lot of sexual abuse, a lot of just... Uh, terrible acts of service that they they become the lowest of the low and and some of these girls get sent there for the most meaningless sins that that there would be there would be something about you'd you'd lose a portion of land or you'd get into a fight or you'd do something so it's not like hey you went out and killed somebody let me find the worst thing that I could do to pay penance to receive grace or 
or so that the God of lightning or the God of all gods might look look down and, and smile on me again because he's accepted this great sacrifice. But it's for menial sins, and, and the tradition of that, Trakozi, still happens today in parts of West Africa. There's, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of non-governmental agencies that are fighting that in West Africa. It happens in Nepal also. Um, and so that's, that's just a strange act of worship that we, we can't even relate to. Um, but we have to understand it in, in order to gain knowledge so that, we can, so that we can become effective witnesses. Obviously, throughout, throughout Africa, there's, there's monotheism, there's polytheism, and then there's henotheism. Um, monotheism is... is basically what we are we believe in that there's one true god polytheism is is we believe in many gods and henotheism is we're devoted to one god but but we acknowledge the existence of others and when i was thinking about this and studying this i thought i wonder if we're not so much monotheistic but more henotheistic meaning that we're devoted to one god but that we acknowledge the existence of other gods. And I thought about how many of us kind of allow other gods to exist in our life. That we would say, yeah, I, I'm a Christian and I believe in God and it's the one true God and, and, and I've accepted Jesus Christ. But then we get to a point where, where it's like, but I have this in my life. Or another way to put it is, yeah, I believe in God with all of my heart, with all of my soul. I'm pursuing him. But sometimes fear holds me back. And it's the fear of these other gods that I acknowledge their existence in my life. That it's, it's I'm not going to do this because of fear of man. And so we have these people maybe in our life that, that we've raised up to the, to the level of a godhead that, that we say, well... I value their opinion more than what I know God's spoken to my heart. Or I, I, I'm too scared to do this because of what people might think of me. And so I want to challenge you guys that, that we shouldn't live a henotheistic life. We shouldn't live with the fear of any other thing because we believe in the one true God that gave his one and only son because he loved us so much. And if he gave his one and only son, then what is he going to stop at? nothing so he's going to protect you he's going to love you he's going to guide you and the things that he speaks into your heart that might just be a whisper he wants you to go full force at it not thinking how am i going to get the money to do this how am i going to rally a team around me to accomplish this how how am i possibly going to graduate school and and go and do what god wants me to do so we need to stop being henotheistic christians coming to church where it's like we're monotheistic on one day and henotheistic on six days because, because the, the God who is our boss, maybe, or the God who is our co-workers, or the God who is our mother or father who, to, who told us one thing when we were little and it's stuck in the back of our minds, that we're never going to amount to this. Or we're never going to accomplish much more than what we've seen our parents or our grandparents do. But we are linked to the God of the ages, the God that has revealed himself to us so that we can reveal himself, him to everyone else that we come into contact with. We should be bright, shining stars that have nothing holding us back. We shouldn't have, we shouldn't have the God of debt in our life that, that says, boy, I would, to, I would totally do that. 
I would totally go on missions. I would totally start an organization. I would totally give money to this person or to, or to that effort. And I could change. I could, I could do it, but I, but I just have this debt in my life. And it's because we love and we serve God, but then we love and we serve these other little gods in our life. And then we fear these other little gods in our life. And, and we're more, we tend to be more like some of those African religions. But in, in order to understand the African religion and the African mindset, we have to understand the history of Africa too. And um, talking about the history of Africa, it's talking about the history of a continent. So we're great at understanding the history of the United States, but it's because it's one country for us, and we know what happened. We, we, know, we know what happened with our independence and our breaking free of, of British tyranny and imperialism. But to talk about a, the history of a continent, you have to understand that there's, there's so many people groups, so many tribes, so many little villages involved in this that have no even concept of where they are on the globe that African history is a little bit more, um, I guess, just, just not as in-depth. It's kind of, we have to say, okay, if we're taking the, the history of this continent, we have to say, okay, this is what it is kind of in an overview of it. And so I'm going to fly through this, but I think it'll get us to the point where I want to land. The disciple Mark went to Egypt in 42 A.D. and spread the good news about Jesus Christ. And what he did there was he didn't just spread it to the Jews that were living in Egypt, in Alexandria at the time, but he spread it also to the Greeks who accepted it. But then, maybe to his surprise, Egyptians started turning to the faith in, in large numbers. And he started, he started the Coptic Orthodox Church, which is still very strong today. 95% of the Christians in Egypt belong to that church. It would be different than... Uh, what we are, obviously, as uh, charismatic evangelical Christians, but with the same basis for our faiths. There's some things, when you get into Coptic churches uh, around the world, there's, um, in Peru, there's a cult in the Coptic church that, that not that this is necessarily um, any, any, any bad part of it, but uh, the distinctiveness of this cult is that is that they believe they they believe in a uh, black Jesus or an African American Jesus? So that's that's not necessarily bad because our our paintings of Jesus are uh, basically a very pale white American with brown hair and a beard, and so we have kind of a, a strange picture maybe or image of who he was because Jesus was very Jewish. Um, but the distinctiveness in Peru, when you can tell if you're if you're dealing with somebody. Taxi drivers, for instance, will have a picture of Jesus hanging around their rearview mirror, and it will be a black Jesus. But, so, but the Coptic church in general is, is a good church. You guys know that in Acts, it talks about Apollos. Um, Apollos was, at the same time as, as Paul, he was kind of another apostle. He came out of Alexandria. He was born in Alexandria, but then he came up to Israel, and he, Paul says that, that he was a help to the formation of the Christian church because he was so well-learned in Christianity and in scriptures about our Lord that he was able to, in public, dispute the Jews, proving through scripture that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. 
And so that came out of Alexandria. So now you're understanding that Christianity was not just this thing that was, that was stuck in Jerusalem and Judea, but it actually started to spread and spread so much so that Alexandria became kind of a Sunday school of its day. It was a gathering of the smartest people and listening to teachings each and every week saying, okay, how can I learn more about my faith? Tell me why. So Jews, Jews and Greeks and even Egyptians are coming and saying, who was this Jesus? Now prove to me, prove to me why that's relevant. And so there's a spread of Christianity in that region and it seeps down to Ethiopia. You guys can look at your maps and you know where that is. And Ethiopia has, has always been a strong nation. It's one of the oldest nations in the world. Uh, the Queen of Sheba uh, came from there. You know that she visited Solomon. But at that point, kind of history becomes a little bit foggy until the 7th century when Arab Muslims come in through Egypt. They conquered Alexandria. They conquered Egypt. And they go all the way through northern Africa, through the desert. They conquer all of northern Africa up to the Atlantic Ocean. They, they own basically the entire northern part of this great continent. And then they even, they even went up and conquered some of Spain. Okay? So, so that's in the 7th century that, that Arab Muslims come in and basically own that. But you guys know the geography of that, of that region is the Sahara Desert, right? So it's very sparse and it's very hard to get through. But because it was because it was owned and basically maintained by Arab Muslims, then um, about 400 years later, throughout, throughout the next 400 years, there was a huge increase of Arab immigrants. And so, so the Islamic faith is growing, not necessarily by proselytization, but it's growing, it's growing just by sheer numbers. There's an open door. It's as if we knew somebody that lived in the Caribbean, and they were like, hey, come on, let's do Sunday school in the Caribbean sometime. I'll pay for you guys to get down there. I'll take care of you. When you get down there, you won't have any expense. Well, we'd go to, we'd go to the Caribbean, right? And so here's, here's some, is, here's some uh, Islamic Arabs that say, hey, look, I'm looking for opportunity. Africa is, is now opening up to opportunities for Arabs. And so there's a huge immigration into northern, into northern Africa during the 11th century, and during that time, the Persians introduced the camel to North Africa. And so, and so now, even the places in the Sahara that have been unreached by Islam are now being reached. And, and it's not just along the trade routes necessarily that uh, the Arabs are, pop, are populating North Africa. It's, it's spreading all throughout North Africa. It got to a point where um, in, in the 15th and 16th centuries, the country of Mali, if you guys look, I'll point it out to you. Um, Mali is the, lighter, is the lighter country. It kind of has a square border at, at one point, um, but it's right there. And then there's, then there's one city in there right above the word Mali that's called Timbuktu. Timbuktu was a trading post because it was right along, it was right along the roads that, that intersected a lot of, a lot of trade routes. And so it started growing as a city throughout the 15th and 16th centuries, and it became the spiritual headquarters for the, for the Islamic faith. And they started, they started a university. It's called um, the Sankore University. And because of, because of the strategic point at which it was, it became the spiritual headquarters of the Islamic faith. And so a lot of people migrated there to study Islam and, 
and it, it became to flourish there. And so Timbuktu is kind of, kind of, kind of became a joke um, of, among the Europeans. But, but the influence of Timbuktu reached Europe to the point that Europeans would say, yeah, well, it's, it's between here and Timbuktu was kind of a popular saying, meaning that Timbuktu is kind of the edge of the known world. Well, why was Timbuktu the edge of the known world? Why, why was North Africa the stopping point of Islam? Why is there still today a line that separates basically Islam from Christianity in Africa? Was it because there were great prayer warriors that were stationed along the countries, kind of at the, the 10 degree north latitude? You, could, you guys can see the equator running through there, and you guys can see where Timbuktu is. Halfway between, halfway between Timbuktu and the equator, basically, is the 10 degree north latitude line. Well, were there great prayer warriors? Were there, was there New Life Church that kind of went in there and camped out, and they're like, all right, no further. It's the, it's the Gandalf, you shall not pass. Was it, was it, is that what happened? No, you know what happened? There just happened to be a forest there. There just happened to be tropical forest. And there were no trade routes that went down there. And so below that was what was called the Dark Continent. It was, it was the rest of Africa. And so, and so you, had, you had basically roads and trails that camels went on and, and different places. And Islam didn't spread south just because there was a forest there. And so, so that's kind of why it, it, it's, it stayed there for today even. But... What happens, what happens after that, where when Timbuktu is thriving, what happens after that is, is imperialism and the colonization of Africa. And all of a sudden, Europeans who are somewhat connected to the trade routes in Mali and in North Africa, they're like, boy, let me get some of this. And so, and so countries like England and France and Belgium and Germany went crazy. Belgium, Belgium owned um, so much of Africa, they owned 76 times the amount of land in Africa than actually the land that they had in Europe. So Belgium is such a tiny country, and they owned basically, if you look at Zaire, uh, the Central Africa Republic, Uganda, um, they owned a lot of that, and it's just tiny, tiny country. And so what happened with colonization were some terrible things. And some great things. Colonization produced slavery and the trade of slaves. And so throughout West Africa, and I told you about Nigeria, that, that um, when people came and colonized areas and they came and owned and they came and just brutalized people, put them on slave ships and took them to the New World, took them, took them up into France and into the rest of Europe to become slaves. But also what happened was Christianity. Christianity spread very quickly and... And through that, there were a lot of great stories. One of the great stories is a, is a man named Lot Carey. Lot Carey actually became a slave in America, but he worked so hard and so diligently that he was able to purchase himself out of slavery. He purchased his own freedom. Now, how do you do that as a slave? Well, he worked in a tobacco factory. What he did was he collected the waste tobacco and bagged it and sold it for his own profit. He was also such a diligent worker that sometimes his boss would hand him a $5 note bill. And, and so he would save it and save it and save it and save it. And then one day he was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy myself my freedom. He buys himself his freedom, 
gets into the Baptist church and decides, you know what, I'm going to go to Liberia. Well, what's Liberia? It's an American colony. You'll see it. it's right next to the, coast, the Ivory Coast. It's right on the chin of the leopard or on the neck of the horse, however you want to look at that. And Liberia was an American colony that Christians and philanthropists started in Africa. Liberia means land of the free. They started this colony to send, if freed slaves wanted to go back to Africa, that was a refuge where they could go back to. And so it it was an American colony. Lot Carey says, I'm going back there, but I'm not going back there just because I'm from Africa. He says, I'm going back there because I now know Christ. And I want, to bring, I want to bring Christ to that country. You know what's so great about that story? He goes out there and he starts a church. He starts a church in, I think it's Moravia, Liberia. And that church is today 181 years old and still there. How amazing. That's one man. That's one man being diligent in his work. That's one man saving his money like I talked about. He's not henotheistic where... Where, okay, I believe in God, but I also I have this thing and I want to spend my money on because it makes me feel good or I want, I want to do this. No, he's saving, he's saving, he's saving. And he, gets, he purchases his own freedom, but then he, then he doesn't just become this American that's throwing his money away. He still saves because he says, I want, to, I want to save up enough money to get me over to Liberia. Wow. And so he does that. And now, 181 years later, in a place that has so many different religions, there's still a church. Robert Moffat was a, was a great missionary from the London Missionary Society. London Missionary Society sent out so many people, changed the, changed the face of Southern Africa. He went to South Africa, Namibia, um, Botswana, and Zimbabwe, and he translated the entire Bible, and he translated the book that some of you guys have read, Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress, into the native language and started, started a school and started a church well, his daughter, Mary Moffat, just happened to be the eventual bride of David Livingston. David Livingston comes over to Southern Africa, and he sees Robert Moffat's work, and he says, okay, let me expand on this. And so he then goes further north. He, gets, he's more, he has kind of the, more of the bug to be an explorer. And so he goes, he goes further north, and, and he, he wanted to focus on some unconventional missionary tactics, which in that, at, that point, at that point, they relied so heavily on the Western mindset, the ideal that, that white people are the only ones that can preach and teach and, and lead these people into discipleship. Well, David Livingston said, no, we're never, ever going to advance far enough or fast enough if it's just me doing it. And so he was, he was a proponent of taking the indigenous converts and making them missionaries too. But you know, one, one funny thing about David Livingston in his whole career as a missionary, how many people do you think he saved? Saved one person. Saved one person. And that one person it got, got kicked out of taking communion later on in life because he, because he had had five wives, and David Livingston talked to him about, okay, you've got to get rid of the, of the four wives and keep the first one that you had. Well, he, he got rid of the four, became a Christian, and then later on, Later on, he took back his second wife. And so the, the church at that time said, well, you can't take communion, which was a big deal because it was more, more threaded with the Catholic church to us. Right now, we would think, okay, you don't want to take a little wafer and a little tiny sip of grape juice. 
no big deal. But back then it was like, hey, that's kind of salvation-ish. So the one person that David Livingston saved in the minds of the known world at that point really ended up saying, well, I don't know if you're really saved. So when, when, you, think, when you think of yourself and you think, boy, what have I ever done? Challenge yourself. Say, you know what? I'm going to be a greater missionary than David Livingston. And it's totally possible. So, but he, he believed that he had a spiritual calling to be an explorer. And, and what I want to land on today is that, is that you don't have to go into full-time ministry. You don't, have to, you don't have to do something that your parents or your grandparents think you should do. You've got to find that thing in your heart that makes you come alive. And you have to pursue that with your whole being. Because David Livingston is known as one of the greatest missionaries of all time. Why? Because the whole world took note of what he was doing. He was exploring. He was, he was charting out maps. He made a way for that continent to be opened up. And so I want you guys to find that one thing that makes you come alive. Don't accept the job that, that you have or the job that you're pointed to. Go and get on your knees and say, God, what do you want me to do? And then it might be some sort of what you might think, a selfish desire beating in your heart saying, boy, if I could do this for the rest of my life, I would sure love it. Then try with the end goal of saying, how is it going to glorify God? How is it going to get the attention of my sphere of influence so that it glorifies God? Go after that. The the decolonization of Africa, real quick, was, was such a terrible mess because all of a sudden human rights became this thing where where the known, the known world was like, okay, we've got to stop doing this. The decolonization of Africa happened in the mid-1900s. Nations fell apart because the white people brought in rule and, and reign, and they didn't train up the natives to, to become, to become the, the kings or the monarchs or, or any of the governors or the presidents. And so when, when the, coloniz- the decolonization happened, it brought huge instability to Africa. And so when you understand African history, you have to understand that in the last 57 years or so, Africa has totally fallen apart to corruption, instability, civil wars, genocides. There's so many things that happened in Uganda with Idi Amin, um, with Rwanda. There was a genocide in 100 days. Over a million people were slaughtered, beat to death, slaughtered, cut into pieces with machete. So many things happened. And so when you go there, you have to, you have to understand that this, this is a people that has been without help, and Romans 10, 9 through 15 is a passage that you can, you can use when you're leading somebody to Christ. It starts, it starts off with the fact that, that, look, if you believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you should be saved. But it ends with this. It ends with how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In the Message Bible, it says this. A sight to take your breath away. Grand processions of people telling all the good things of God. A sight to take your breath away. That's almost written from the perspective of an African saying, do you have any idea what I've just gone through? Do you know that I can't call my grandma? I can't call my grandpa? I can't find my brothers and sisters? The man who stood up at the mill on Friday that was from Sudan that has no idea potentially where his family is because of, because of the war that's taken place, because because we as Westerners went in and said, oh, look at this, let's get this, let's get the gold, let's get the natural resources, let's do all these good things. And then we as Westerners 
changed our mind, <laughs> said, oh, maybe that's not the greatest, let's pull out. And Idi Amin was the third president of Uganda, and he, he came in through a military coup. The nation loved him for like 10 days, and then they were like, oh, wait a minute. He just called himself the president for life <laughs> after saying that there would be free um, democratic elections. He, he kicked out, out 80,000 Asians and Indians who were the business owners in Uganda and gave the businesses to his friends. His friends had no idea how to run those businesses. So the economy, imagine that. We freak out when the price of gas goes up by 10 cents or 20 cents. Imagine being in Uganda and it's like total and absolute chaos. The genocide of Rwanda, neighbors were killing neighbors because it was a class, a, a clash of classes where it wasn't even what tribe you were in. It was, it was have you... Have you gained an education? Are you a business owner? Or are you a poor person? And, and then if you weren't willing to kill the other class, then your own class would kill you. Can you imagine? And so what's our job over there? To leave it alone? Islam brings hope to those people. Islam brings stability to those people. And if we sit here and watch, we will see... Islam, find a way through the dense forest. I guarantee it. And did you know that one of the major hubs of Islamic forces and radical Islam right now is in South Africa? So what do you think is happening? And so a Christian nation like Uganda has pressure. A Christian nation like Uganda needs young men and young women to be trained up in godly righteousness so that they can run their nation and tell their neighbors and tell their families, no, you know what? we got to do this God's way. we got to do it the right way. we got to stand for righteousness. Even though other countries would fall around us, we got to stand for righteousness. And we have a part to play in that. But you have to understand the history of that continent to understand our role that we play. And that's just Africa. That's just Africa. Think about all the other nations that some of you guys might be called to or go to eventually. But you have to understand the... They have to understand the... The history, you have to understand the heart of the people that would cry out for us that says, a sight to take your breath away. Grand processions of people telling all the good things of God. Boy, if that's not a prophecy for mill missions, I don't know if I could find one. Because it's grand processions. So I want to take as many people over there that will come with us. And so you guys need to sign up. You need to come. And you need to play a part in this. But let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you. Jesus, we thank you for the love that you've given us. God, we thank you that we've grown up in a nation that's chosen to serve you from the beginning. We thank you that there's not instability here. That when the price of coffee goes up, we kind of freak out about the price of Starbucks, God. But we're so glad that we don't have to worry about our neighbors killing us or an evil dictator taking a place and and changing everything that we know and hold dear. But God, we pray for that continent. We pray for those countries. We pray for the leaders of those countries to come to know you in a real way. God, we know that we can touch your heart and send your spiritual forces across an ocean, across countries, across land masses to change history. And so God, we intercede on behalf of those who don't even know how to call out to you 
on their own behalf. We say, God, come, send your spirit, be near to them. And God, send us. Allow us to do your work, whether it's here or on a different continent, God. We say, use us. That's the deepest cry of our heart is that we would be used by you. So we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.